Hello, my name is Stuart Leakes and I'm talking to Neil Bartlett, who is the director of Opera North's new and in fact first ever production of Tchaikovsky's The Queen of Spades. Hello Neil. Hello Stuart. Tchaikovsky is the composer of some of the most popular music ever written um, and I suppose part of the reason for that is that as well as having this extraordinary gift for glorious melodies, he also is a composer who's not afraid of emotional extremes, is he? You know, whether that be romantic love or obsession or uh, the terror of mortality. And we get a bit of all of those, don't we, in The Queen of Spades? And more. And more. And within minutes, um, even with the overture itself, we get the darkest night of the Russian soul. And then five bars later, an almost musical comedy celebration of the first day of spring. Um, it, it does seem that he was, it wasn't just that he was interested in or fascinated by what happens in extreme situations. He seemed to think that's where he spent all of his time. That's where his heart lay. Um, no, you can't imagine anyone in, in a Tchaikovsky opera saying, do you fancy a cup of tea? Um, he plunges us right into the heart of the situation. And he, the thing that I'm starting to learn now that I'm here and finally working on the score with the singers instead of just in my head preparing for rehearsals, is the extraordinary emotional logic where he sets each of these characters in an apparently impossible situation and then uh, follows them every step of the way to the most terrible conclusions, or the most joyful conclusion, depending how the opera strikes your heart. And it's based, isn't it, on a, a, a story by Alexander Pushkin, one of the great Russian classics. Uh, but Tchaikovsky does make some very significant changes. Uh, the tone of the piece actually is very different, isn't it? I suppose that whereas Pushkin goes in for this sort of quite detached, ironic tone with Tchaikovsky, it's much more sort of on the sleeve, full-blooded uh, emotionalism. Is that is that true? Would you say? In one way, that is true. Yes, you. On first viewing, you go, well, okay, so the Pushkin is quite, people say, well, it's dry, detached, ironic, even vicious, whereas Tchaikovsky is, as you say, much more sort of open heart surgery, blood everywhere. But I'm not sure that they are chalk and cheese. Mm. I think what brought Tchaikovsky to Pushkin, Pushkin's story is very, very moving. The method Pushkin uses to get there may be different, but Pushkin is an extraordinarily compassionate writer. And actually, um, I was speaking to Gerard McBurney, who I've just been working with on another project in Manchester, who's a great Russian expert and yes. Russian speaker, and he says, ah, oh, yes, but the thing people, English people, don't know about Pushkin is the incredible beauty of Pushkin's sentences. That's what Russians are most proud of in Pushkin. The melody, the extraordinary lyrical tug and pull of the Russian that you get in Pushkin. And so maybe it was 
maybe these two artists are closer together than we think. And also I would say there's an enormous amount of detachment, cruelty even, and certainly wicked black humour in the Tchaikovsky people. People think of those qualities as belonging to Pushkin. There are terrible moments of dry, bitter irony in the Tchaikovsky. It's the mixture of the two that I find so fascinating. And uh, you've had an extraordinary career stretching back over what, four decades now, really, as, as both a director... Why do I suddenly <laughs> feel tired? <laughs> <laughs> but as a, as a theatre director, but also yeah. as a writer um, as a, a fiction, but you've, you've made uh, many adaptations of classic texts for the, yes. for the stage as well. And you've been working on the English translation of this piece because... Uh, Opera North is performing it in English. Yes. Um, I'm interested in, in what differences or what similarities there have been for you in working on the text for this opera as opposed to, say, working on the text of a, of a Marivaux play, which is just right. going to be spoken. It is different because there are technical considerations. Um, a libretto has to be sung, not spoken. And... Um, it's not rocket science, but you do have to be... I mean, I made this translation with Martin Pickard here from Opera North. You do have to be working with someone who understands absolutely how different vowel sounds and different consonants have to be placed so that the singers, all the bits of the singer's equipment, um, the throat the vocal folds, the resonances in the head, are all in the right place because it is true that you can't sing a hopeless sound on the, on the wrong note. If you've got the word wrong, the sound won't come out right. So there are technical considerations that you wouldn't have in a naturalistic play. But it's not the first time where I've had to consider sound as an intrinsic element in translation. For instance, in a Marivaux play, where you place the breath in the line, which is probably how you place the punctuation in your translation, his original punctuation is incredibly important. He, he's very exact about where he puts the commas and the semicolons so that the actor can breathe right to pace the feeling of the sentence. The same is true of Racine, the same is true of Genet, uh, both of whom I translated. So the idea that the, the most important thing in a translation is the first time the performers meet it that their mouths are happy. The first days of rehearsal in a Shakespeare play or in a Marivaux play or in a music rehearsal for the opera are really only about one thing, which is, can you get it in your mouth? Um, does it fit? Does it sound right? You can hear in a music rehearsal, you can hear the moment where you've picked, for instance, I've just come out of a music rehearsal and um, one of the phrases uh, in Hermann's very, just before Hermann, the hero of the Queen of Spades, dies, he has to sing just two words. He thinks he's seeing an apparition of the woman he loves, Lisa, in the opera. And in the translation, Martin and I had him sing, You here, meaning I can't believe you've come to see me on my deathbed. 
but we've got the sound wrong. And I, you could hear straight away, you know, Jeff Lloyd Roberts is a great singer, but he, of course he is, but you could hear straight away, ah, that's not quite sitting right. We changed the line to, you're here. Bingo. So you would think, oh, come on, that can't make that much difference. You, your, but put it in your mouth, try it. Now try singing it. Your mouth is a different shape. So that's the kind of detail that we have to work in to make a libretto singable. And uh, touch wood, uh, the company seem very happy with the, new, with the new words that we've given them. So I, I hope the audience will be too. And that leads on to, to singers, I suppose. Uh, right. uh, I wonder for you, having spent a lot of work, a lot of time working in theatre on all sorts of uh, extraordinary range of pieces of work with an extraordinary range of performers. Mm. Um, is there very much difference then working with opera singers? Operas come relatively late into your working yeah, this life, is, This it? is the first time I've done a great big opera. Um, so I feel very much like the new boy here at Opera North. Again, it both is different and it isn't different. Uh, it is different in the, the, the technical sophistication required to create the sounds of Tchaikovsky's score are of a different order um, than performing naturalistic dialogue in the theatre. Um, it's that much more complex an art. It's perhaps the difference between strolling down the street and running a hundred metres hurdles. You can't just do it through willpower alone, you have to be able to do it, you have to have the technique. But that said, there are enormous similarities. I mean, you can't just pick up um, to be or not to be by William Shakespeare and just say it. Actually, you can't. Um, there are, especially if you're performing it in a theatre that has 2,000 seats, you really can't, um, which is what it was written for. Um, questions of how do you tell the story through the voice are not unique to opera. But when you're dealing with music like Tchaikovsky's, you reach a point of technical sophistication where, thank God, you're working with the kind of company that we're lucky enough to have here, where you've got people who, they've got all of that technique under their belt. Um, but no, if you're, some of, the, some of the writers that I've translated and then rehearsed are perhaps the ones who are closest to opera. Racine is almost singing. It's, it requires such technical skill vocally in vocal production and the support of the voice, the breathing, the pacing. Um, Oscar Wilde is another example. If you're you know, sometimes in an Oscar Wilde play, you get those wonderful duchesses who appear in Act Two and give huge long speeches, which bring the house down. The usually speeches about not very much, while the lead character is suffering quietly in the corner. <laughs> well, those long speeches, you have if you if you're working with a really experienced 
actor on one of those, you'll see they sit down and in the course of rehearsals they work out where every single breath is, where every single change of pace, change of vocal colour, exactly in the same way as the singers here are working with Richard, our maestro of where do I breathe, Ah, yes, that's actually a crotchet and not a minim, um, in the same way as I would say, yeah, actually you're putting a semicolon there and actually it's only a comma. So I say I'm a new boy, but there are, there are, all performers are performers, and to deliver a story in front of a packed house using just your voice, that uh, we're talking about points on a spectrum rather than a complete change of technique, I would say. I mean, it's clear from everything you've been saying that, that music and musicality is mm. enormously important to you. Uh, yes. So what, what excites you about opera in general and about this opera in particular? Oh, God, how long have you got? Um, I mean, I discovered opera very late in my life, really. We didn't have classical music in our house when I was growing up. It was Radio 2. We, we didn't have any... My mum and dad didn't have any classical records. We didn't go to the opera. I only discovered the opera when I was probably 20, and I, someone took me to the Colosseum in London for the first time. I love the buildings... I have to say, one of the main excitements here in Leeds is that incredible auditorium, which was, which is yeah. sort of almost contemporary with the with the, yeah, piece, with the but, opera, you know, a decade um, or so. Yes, yeah. it's fantastic. It always makes me think of Coleridge in in Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree. Though, I mean. Or Frankie goes to Hollywood, welcome to the Pleasure Dome. I think of theatres like the Grand in Leeds. It's so magnificent. The moment you step through the door, you smell theatre. I love that. Um, opera is one of the best ways we have of uh, inquiring after the workings of the heart. Um, and that's a subject dear to me, uh, both as a punter. That's what I like when I go to the theatre in the evening. Um, but also as an artist. Um, the scale of it, I love. Um, opera can never be a, a solitary art. Um, opera is something in a big room with a lot of people going through something together. And... That's something I think we lack more and more and need more and more. You know, uh, I've just worked at the Manchester International Festival and one of the best things in that festival this year was Bjork unveiled a new album and she did an amazing series of concerts with a, a woman's choir from Iceland and great big instruments all over the stage and video projection and someone who I went to the gig with said oh my god isn't this amazing you've got these visuals and the choir and this amazing woman singing her heart out in these incredible instruments producing this sound from the darkness and I thought yep it's just like going to the opera <laughs> it was it was as good as going to the opera so it just 
Of course, if we fall flat on our face, a bad at the evening at the opera can be torture like almost no other human experience. But if it works, on, on the moments when it works, it's just, it's so, uh, it's so exciting. Mm. It's really, really exciting. And this opera in particular, I think, you know, different, there's no such thing as opera. Composers are so different to each other. That's like saying, well, colour. You go, yeah, are you talking about red or blue? Well, opera, are you talking about Mozart or Mussorgsky? They're so different. And I've been thinking, you know, what is it that Tchaikovsky, what's his... What's his genre? What's his palette? What's his colour? And it seems to me he's he's very interested in excitement. You know, what happens when the blood surges, when the orchestra surges, in a very specific physical, carnal way. He's a very erotic composer, I think. And and the this opera is exciting with a capital E. And he's a fantastic theatre composer, isn't he? I mean, we know from those extraordinary ballet scores, as yeah. well as, you know, there's this piece, and, um, of course, Eugene Onyegin, his other really He's great a great opera. storyteller. But actually, even, say, the late symphonies are extraordinary emotional dramas as well, so it's, yeah. it's just in his blood, isn't it? This theatricality. Yeah. It seems, yeah, a real man of the theatre. You don't have a sense of... Um, he never stays in his study. He's always reaching to it. He wants the stage. He wants the, the singers, the dancers, and he wants the crowd. I think he wants the audience. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what kind of world, then, have you and uh, your designer, Candice Cook, who's designed the sets and the costumes for this, um, attempted to evoke the atmosphere for the, for the piece because I think that Tchaikovsky sets the opera sort of in the late 18th century whereas I believe the Pushkin is actually sort of more anchored to around the time that it was written which I think was the 1830s yes. I don't know if that's quite right but well, what, what, what have you gone we've for? split the difference the costumes are quite strongly rooted around 1810 mm -hmm. and I don't want to give it away. Is this the people hear this before they come? Yes. Well, I want to keep the secret of when the curtain goes up and you'll see what you'll see. There are... Fair enough. You don't... I mean, I want to keep the promise of the title, the Queen of Spades. It's not the woman down in the corner shop, right? It's the Queen of Spades. So that promises a certain grandeur, a certain beauty... Uh, a certain strangeness. So we want to give people those things. So you're not going to see a bare stage and lots of people wearing grey. Equally, I'm not a director. I don't personally, uh, my taste is not for the curtain to go up and there's lots of, uh, you know, sometimes the curtain goes up and you go, oh God, that's a lot of sofas and uh, a lot of, you know, uh, stuffing, I don't know, upholstery, 
because um, Tchaikovsky is very urgent, you know, let's get on with what's happening. What are these people really feeling? So, and also the staging has to be incredibly clean because you're dealing with a chorus of 56 people, there are 20 kids, there are 15 principals, a lot of people, and you have to be able to move them on and off stage really easily. So you can't afford to clutter up the space. Also, the the opera is really about what is happening inside the principles. So we've tried to create a space which can amplify and reflect uh, the various torments that they're going through. And there are two other really important partners in that process. Um, Leia Hausman, who's the, my choreographer, on the production and Leah and I have been working together for nearly 30 years and know each other very well and the kind of pictures we want to make on stage. Well, when you've got a chorus of 56, there's the scenery. Uh, there's You can create such amazing changes of dynamic and space and atmosphere and feeling with the bodies of 56 people on stage. And Chris Davey, who's lighting the show, again, Chris and I have worked together many times, um, give Chris one person and a bare wall and he will tell any kind of story that you want him to tell the things he can do with colour and shadow the combination, the difference between a footlight and a spotlight and a floodlight so we, we're wringing maximum drama out of minimum means but um, it's a it's a hell of a show. Uh, yes, I don't think you could accuse us of being too minimalist in our approach. And there is a kind of, there is a kind of madness about about the piece, isn't oh, there, and yes. about the characters. You know that they that they are all actually really fascinating. The principles, particularly fascinating character studies, who aren't generic types. I think that's one no, of the no. very fascinating things about this, this opera. And, and, and Tchaikovsky's empathy for them is, you know, is, gives the piece a lot of that urgency, I think, that you talked about. I think he talked in a letter about, you know, how he could hardly bear to, to, to compose some of the, you mm. know, the, the, the most pivotal scenes in the piece. So there's mm. this tremendous sense of personal involvement in it. He, like all really good artists, uh, he seems to write everyone from the inside, whether they're a man or a woman, whether they're 30 or 80. He, he doesn't write from the outside. He doesn't say, look at her. He says, feel with me. Um, and that, that gives it uh, a real kick. Mm. Um, yeah, but boy, they're twisted, the people in this opera. But if we wanted reality, we could all stay at home and watch the telly. Yeah. I think if you, you know, why else? You don't come to the opera because you want to spend the evening with some nice, reasonable people, just like your neighbours. You want, you want to see people doing the things that none of us dare to do in our lives. That's what opera is for, isn't it? To see someone who says, I'm going to risk everything. I'm going to scream. I'm going to kill. I'm going to rail against the world. 
and they do all of those things in this opera. And it's a fantastic cast doing all of that. Yeah, <laughs> where I can, I'm slightly, you know, it's week one of rehearsals, I'm slightly in a daze from being in, I mean, I met everyone at the auditions, but this is the first time I've been in the room with the company assembled, and you do think, blimey, we've got some, you know, there's a pretty, pretty amazing cast. Yes. One final question then, uh, which will probably be impossible. Um, try me. But I'll try you. Uh, can you pick just one moment from the, from the whole piece, one musical and dramatic moment that for you is a special highlight and we should listen out for? Oh, there are so many. Um, I think the transition from the end of Act Two, Scene One, which is a grand ballroom scene, and then the beginning of Act Two, Scene Two, which is an empty, silent, dark room at midnight with just a one clock chiming midnight in an empty room. Um, the, the sheer daring the musical daring of going from a crowded ballroom where you have the entire company of the opera in full voice. You turn the page and there's the, the whisper of midnight. I, it's thrilling. Sounds good to me. We'll settle for that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.